0: I want you to think way, way back, maybe to school or time you spent with respected people. Can you think of some times in your life when someone gave you a little nugget of truth that stuck with you? Maybe a little proverbial statement, a little piece of advice, a warning, and you remember it years or decades later? I can think of many, but one in particular that I heard when I was a teenager was this statement. You can impress people from a distance, but you can only impact them up close. You can impress people from a distance, but you can only impact them up close. That quote came from Dr. Howard Hendricks, who taught for many years at Dallas Theological Seminary, and someone that had picked that up from him passed that on to me, and that statement has in many respects shaped my relationships it has shaped the way i do ministry you can impress people from a distance but you can only impact them up close we're spending time in the book of 1st Thessalonians and in the book of 1st Thessalonians paul speaks his audience about the need for what we could call incarnational ministry, incarnational ministry, meaning embodied ministry, the need for us to be present in other people's lives if we are going to make disciples. And what we're going to learn from the text that I've selected today is that there's something transformational about incarnational ministry. There's something transformational about incarnational ministry. Now, there is a trend, as you've noticed, in our culture to separate people from one another. I'm not just talking about the last four months. I'm talking about for the last 20 or 30 years. Some examples of that include distance education, while it's convenient, So we'll just send you some tapes in the old days or some DVDs or now you can jump online and you can watch the teacher lecture and you can actually graduate having never met your instructor. Or virtual church. We post our sermons online. To be honest with you, I've never been a fan of that. For many years I pushed back. I don't like online preaching. I don't like online worship. I'd prefer not to be online, but I was kind of (laughs) overruled by the majority of voices in our church. Like, we have to go online. Okay, we'll do it. And for many years, we called it our third service to kind of mitigate against the temptation that people have to just kind of stay home and watch church. I I don't like it. Online dating, I mean, how weird is that to be in an intimate relationship with someone and perhaps have never met them? Even texting has overtaken probably all forms of weekly communication. People are much more likely to send you a text message than they are to even pick up the phone or certainly show up at your house. And I would just like to remind us that all of these things are second best to incarnational relationships. And all of these things, if they're used for ministry purposes, are second best to incarnational embodied ministry. You see, Christians are committed to the blessing of incarnational ministry, together with, it, together with its joys and sorrows. Being present with one another is a biblical concept that bears much fruit. Jesus, of course, could have just sent us books. He could have sent us videos. He could have sent us pictures. But he chose to condescend into this world and spend face time with people. To be in people's presence and to allow people to be in his presence. And now, on a spiritual level, one of the unique things about the Christian faith, which I don't think very many other religions claim, is that the presence of Christ continues to dwell in us and among us. So we don't just worship a God from afar, although at times it might feel that way. But we do not worship a God from afar. The, the Spirit of Christ lives in us. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. So spe- let's get, get into the Scriptures. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, through to chapter 3, verse 13, is the portion we're going to be dissecting today. And as we do, I'd like to frame this up as four blessings of incarnational ministry. Four blessings of incarnational ministry. The first one of which is presenting disciples to Jesus. This is one of the blessings of incarnational ministry, presenting disciples to Jesus. This is going to become better understood as we read the text, but it's essentially seeking to ask the question: Am I headed in the right direction? So, you, I'm speaking today to the church, your disciples of Christ. And you should know by now, unless you've only been saved for a couple of hours, but you should know by now that you're a disciple-maker, that you have been given a great commission. The great commission wasn't given to Aaron Rock all by his lonesome. It wasn't given to bishops and priests and evangelists and teachers all by themselves. It was given to the church. So you are fundamentally a disciple who is also a disciple-maker, And I'm sure many of you are trying to figure out, how do I become a good disciple maker? How do I become better at it? Well, here's the four blessings of incarnational ministry to present disciples to Jesus. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we'll start reading in verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Do you know the answer to that? Jesus is coming back. What's going to be your joy? What is going to be your Hope, what is going to be your crown? What are, you, what are you going to want? How are you going to react? How are you going to act when you stand for the first time in the literal presence of Christ? Have you, have you thought about that at all? What are, what are going to be the first words out of your mouth? What is going to be your heart's desire? It's funny, we're all like, I want to get there. And yet many of us don't think about what we're going to say, what we're going to do, how we're going to act, when we do. Paul's thinking about that. Mature disciples think about these things. Well, here's his answer to the question. Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. What was Paul's passion? Like when I stand before Jesus for the first time, what am I going to say? What's my goal? What am I going to do? I want to present to Jesus the disciples I have made. Jesus, look, I've been a faithful disciple maker. Look at the endless rows of disciples I have made for your honor and your glory. This was Paul's passion. He, he had an eagerness and so should we, to meet with one another because we are motivated by the knowledge of the eschatological, the future goals of discipleship is to be able to present other disciples to Jesus. And not only are we motivated to meet and to be a presence to one another, notice he says face-to-face, not online, he was writing them a letter, but he clearly didn't really like it. He wanted to be with them because he wanted to present them mature before Christ, but he was also aware of the reality of spiritual attack. He was also aware that every disciple who was by his or her lonesome is vulnerable. We live in a hyper-individualistic age and so many very foolish, foolish Christians think that they can grow without the church. You cannot grow very much without the church at all. If you're not in church, you're not part of the church, you're not fellowshipping with the church, you're not using your gifts, there's no way in God's green earth you could ever claim to be a mature disciple. It's impossible. You're, You're violating multiple commandments in Scripture, and you have no access to the one and others of Scripture, and on and on and on and on and on. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you chose to become part of a spiritual community called the church, and you're now a disciple maker. Now, notice there are some marks of maturity that mature disciple makers possess. Let me just go through them here quick from the text. The first is a heart for your disciples. This is a sign of maturity. Do you have a heart for your disciples? Do you have a heart for other people? Do you desire? This is like your top 10 list of life desires. Do you desire to see other people mature into fully devoted followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, or are you just kind of concerned about your own walk with Jesus? Our society is incredibly self-centered. We we know this. I went through a lot of descriptions a few weeks ago about how creative we've become with the use of the word self, self self-expression, self-esteem, self-worth, self-motive, and on. There's an endless list of words that indicate societal interest in self. Even when we describe ourselves, we're like, oh, are you an introvert or an extrovert? My question is, Who cares? Are you an introvert or an extrovert? It's like this, this fixation on who I am. What am I like? Do I need to recharge by myself or from people's presence? Who cares? The Bible never talks about stuff like this. These are categories that are completely of no interest to Paul, of no interest to Jesus, of no interest to John. They're not even talked about in the scriptures, but we talk about them all the time, trying to figure ourselves out. And it indicates, I believe, a focus. This conversation about introverts and extroverts, it, it, if you think about it, it indicates this fixation on self when it comes to conversations about relationships. It's like, well, what am I like in that relationship? Does this relationship feed me, bless me? Instead of eyes off self, eyes onto other people, Paul is just disinterested in himself as he grows closer to Jesus. And he's very interested in being a blessing to others. And secondly, spiritual awareness. So a heart for disciples. Secondly, spiritual awareness. He references satanic attack. And this is going to come up again in the same portion of Scripture. Satanic attack. Making disciples is the last thing Satan wants. Every disciple of Christ is one less disciple of Satan. And so there's a battle for recruits, because you're going to follow one or the other. There's no spiritual neutrality. There's no no no-man's land. You're either with Jesus or you're with the devil. And so he's aware of this. He's aware that disciple-making is a spiritual battle. And therefore, you cannot be trivial about a spiritual battle. You cannot be forgetful. You cannot miss the call of Christ to make disciples. Third, not only do mature disciples have a heart for their disciples' spiritual awareness, but they have a soul that is pointed in the right direction. And what I mean by that is that they have a passion. Notice the words joy, hope, and crown. Joy, hope, and crown. All of these things are tied to... Making disciples. You might say, Oh, what brings me joy? Vacationing. What brings me joy? A raise. What brings me joy? She said, I do. What brings me joy? We, we define joy by what best blesses us, do we not? What brings us hope? Well, I have, I have a hope for better days. I have a hope for a future with Jesus. And these things aren't necessarily bad, but Paul demonstrates this maturity by saying his hope was actually for others. The crown, this is a reference to a reward. What are you hoping for when you get to heaven from Jesus? I hope he rewards me for being faithful, for persevering, for putting up so so many challenges and tribulations. And Paul just pushes those aside and he says, no, my joy, my hope, my crown is in the disciples that I have made. You know what? When your priorities align with the heart of God, you desire this kind of work. When your priorities align with the heart of God, you will want to make disciples, and it will give you joy to make disciples. It will give you joy. It will give you hope. It will be your, the reward that you pursue. Do a little self-evaluation. I'm sure all of you, if you're in church, kind of have some sort of a desire to serve the Lord. You want to serve in an area of the church. Why do you want to serve in an area of the church? Why do you want to be a youth leader? Why do you want to be an elder? Why do you want to lead a small group? Why do you want to play up on the stage? Is it because it like makes you feel good? Makes you feel fulfilled? Checks your little list of you know, must-do things in order to make Jesus happy? Or is your desire to make disciples? If it's not to make disciples, you're ill-motivated. The goal of every Christian is to make disciples. And that's only possible if our souls are pointed in the right direction, which is that vertical focus. And fourth, there's an eschatological focus where Paul is thinking beyond the moment, the circumstances, the assignments to the ultimate goal. He's heaven-focused. His eyes are fixated on things to come. By the way, if you're going to be a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, unless, you know, there's a certain blessing in getting saved like a year before you die. (laughs) Because you don't have to tolerate a lot of challenges in the church and broken relationships with other Christians and pushback and all that kind of thing. But for those of you that are going to follow Jesus Christ for years or decades, I'm going to tell you this. If you're going to last... You have to stay focused on eternal things. You have to. Because your greatest pains will come from other Christians. I'm very rarely hurt by lost people. Lost people don't hurt me because I'm not invested. They, they don't really have... I don't really care what they think. They're not invested in my life in the same way. But other Christians who you love and have spent time with will hurt you deeply. It's going to happen. Churches will disappoint you. Churches will divide. Churches will fall apart. Churches will close. New churches will start. If your hope hope is in other Christians, as much as you love other Christians, but if your hope is in other Christians, if your hope is in your church, the location of your church, the the feel of your church, the culture, the context of your church, you're not going to last you have to have an eschatological focus that transcends, that goes beyond the moment. And God, of course, does bless us through his people. I've been blessed in significant ways, incalculable ways through the church. And I'm also blessed when I stick with it. I'm blessed when I persevere. I'm blessed by not jumping from church to church. You know, when I was starting off in ministry, it was pretty common for lead pastors to stay in the same church for five years and youth pastors to stay for two Thank God the trends are turning. I have no interest, no desire. I never look. I'm not, I don't think about going elsewhere. It's just completely off my radar because this is my spiritual family. And if I'm going to, to be a spiritual leader in this church, I need to demonstrate perseverance, and so should you. Unfortunately, some Christians make a hobby out of church hopping and pew shopping. Now, there's good reasons to leave churches, false doctrine, lack of disciples being made, godless leadership. But I think too often than not, people leave because, well, somebody failed to recognize them or I don't like the music or they changed the address or they changed the name or whatever it might be. It doesn't demonstrate perseverance, doesn't demonstrate a God, an eternal focus. It demonstrates that you're too concerned about the here and now. And Paul just helps us to take our eyes off of the here and now. And he forces us to ask ourselves questions like Do I long to be with God's people? Will I play the long game? Or will I be a flaky Christian? Will I be focused on myself? This is the first mark of the mature disciple maker. The second mark we're going to see in the text is building quality disciples. Are we interested in quantity? Yes. Excuse me. Sometimes you hear Christians say, it's not about the numbers. Really? (laughs) It's not about the numbers. Of course it's about the numbers. I would much rather win a thousand people to Christ than two. I would much rather pastor a church of a million people than three because each of these people represent Souls made in the image of likeness of God. Of course it's about the numbers. But it's never about the numbers at the expense of quality. So do we want quantity? Yes, we want quantity. <clears throat> but we don't aim for quantity, we aim for quality. And guess what? When you aim for quality, you get quantity. That's how it works. One comes before the other. So building quality disciples, verse 3. Or should I say chapter 3, verse 1 and following reads, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, notice his pastoral heart, I cannot, ah, I miss you, I want to be with you. When I could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, "...that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when..." And now he repeats himself the second time. "...I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Again, Paul acknowledges that spiritual forces were trying to destroy his disciples through various afflictions. This word comes up more than once. He references Satan, and yet his desire is to come and push Satan out of the way and mature these disciples. How does he do that? The first thing in the list is he wants to establish and exhort his disciples. I'm going to take these words together. I don't think they're that much different. Establish and exhort. Now, the means of doing that is through teaching and accountability and encouragement and all of that. But ultimately, you won't be established and you won't be exhorted unless through teaching, through prayer, through accountability, through encouragement, you learn this fundamental truth. And that is that only inner strength grounded and founded in Jesus Christ can sustain you. Only inner strength grounded and founded in Christ can sustain you. So to be established doesn't mean to be established so much in a church or in your disciplines. Church is good. Disciplines are good or in certain processes, or in certain religious procedures. All of these things are good, but the goal is not to get you praying every day, and reading your Bible every day, and serving every day, and giving to your church, and sharing the gospel. That's not the the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is that you might be established, grounded and founded in Christ, that your spiritual strength might be gleaned from Jesus, and then out of that, and I would also say through that, There's a place for prayer and Bible study and giving and serving and all of that. But keep in mind, that the Christian faith is not about calling people to the externals. The ultimate goal is that we all might grow up and mature into the fullness of Jesus. So as disciple-makers establish and exhort their disciples, ultimately what they're doing is they're reminding them of their true strength, which is in Jesus. Secondly, mature disciple-makers warn There's a couple warning statements in here. He warns them that affliction will happen. He warned them in advance that affliction will happen. And we should do the same with our disciples. Don't share the gospel and lead people to Christ and then make them think that their problems are solved. Let them know right out of the gates. All those people we baptized last week, you remember that? Was that not a joy? 14 people. By the way, let me just say this. I love both the men and women in our church but I was hugely blessed to see that 12 of the 14 baptized last week were men. This is a huge win for the church because if we can get the men who are or will in the future be leading their families and their children, there's a multiplication effect to that. And a lot of churches, unfortunately, there's virtually no men in the church. They've all left. There's reasons for that because the church is painted pink. fake flowers on the stage, and the pastor's effeminate. There's reasons for that. Sadly, we've femini- feminized much of the church. We don't do that at our church. We want to be a church that is a blessing to men, and we want to make men into mature disciples who can leave their children in the things of the Lord. And we're not going to apologize for that, so that's a little sidebar I was kind of excited about that, as you perhaps can tell. (laughs) We make disciples. We make those disciples, those new baptismal, baptized believers. We need to say to them, look, now you need to know you're going to be tempted. You're going to be tried. Suffering's inevitable. You need to brace yourself. There's going to be attack. What do I do? You essentially have four choices when you're attacked. And all of them are uh, options for you. Sometimes you have to flee like Joseph. Remember when Joseph was spiritually tempted? He laced up his running shoes and he took off. Sometimes you have to run when you're attacked. You can fight like David. Sometimes you need to push back. Sometimes you need to take territory. So there's, there's times when we run. There's times when we fight. There's other times when we go to jail like Paul and we wait for God to do a miracle and release us. And then the fourth option is there's times when we die like Stephen. Now, we might all have a preference there, but those are your four options. You can run, you can fight, you can go to jail, or you can die, but you have to do something. What isn't an option and should never be on your list is to bow down and raise the white flag of surrender. There's one flag of white surrender you should raise in your life, and that is to the Lord Jesus Christ. And after that, you should never raise a white flag to any other so-called authority. Bowing down is not an option. So if you're a new disciple, by the way, let me just remind you. You've signed up for death, for jail, for a fight, or for some running. And at different points in your life, you may need to do one or more of those things. So mature disciple-makers warn their disciples. Third, they check up on them. This is going to rattle the cages of those of you that think that your relationship with Jesus Christ is merely personal. Okay, I think the the evangelical church has overplayed the personal relationship with Jesus card to the point that many people in our church think that their relationship with Jesus is only personal. And they have no conception of the idea of the interpersonal nature of relationships within the church. Paul says, I sent to learn about your faith. Apparently, he felt that the faith of his disciples was his business and vice versa. So he checked up on them. Sometimes we use the word accountability. That's a good word. We want to hold people to account. We want to check, it, check up on each other. I want you to check. I know, I know you check up on me every week when you're listening to me and observing me, but even personally, how are you doing spiritually, Pastor? How's your marriage? How are your disciplines? You can ask me those questions. I mean, I don't want 100 of you asking me every week. But ask me those questions anytime you want, and I'll tell you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I don't mind that at all. I think it's a blessing. We should check up on each other and make sure that we're doing well. We should be accountable to one another. If you're in the mold or weld industry if you are if you've created a mold that's expensive I, th- I think they probably all are and for whatever reason the product that you're producing from that mold requires that you check it they have this technology called acoustic microimaging and they basically run sound waves to understand it through the mold or if it's a weld that has to can't have air in it or impurities in it they'll run it over the mold or the weld, and they'll check. They'll check it deeply in order to make sure that there's no flaws, in order to make sure that the material is consistent and strong. Material is expensive. You don't want to just throw it away and redo things. Time is expensive. So this acoustic microimaging allows mold makers and welding engineers to check things at a deep level. And the same should happen in the church. Disciple makers check for cracks in the foundations of their disciples. They look for blind spots, and they graciously come and they say, hey, brother, you're neglecting prayer, or you're relying on self, or you're engaged in conduct that is unbecoming of a Christian. They ask good questions, to get their disciples thinking. They watch for behavioral changes. If you've been a disciple maker for a long time, those of you that have served in leadership in the church, it's like you have spidey sense. You kind of know when people are floundering spiritually. There's something in their countenance that changes. There's something about the way they conduct themselves that, that changes. Because human beings... Are very much like other human beings, are very much like other human beings. We're amazingly similar. Well, good disciple makers watch for behavioral changes. They ask good questions. Just like in the mold and welding industries, quality is not built without inspection, input, accountability, and correction. And inspection is an in person activity, it's an incarnational activity. You know, Good luck on Zoom trying to figure out how well your disciples are doing. Good luck through email trying to figure out how your disciples are doing. There's something about living life together where your your spidey senses kind of kick in and and you're able to speak into each other's lives and be a blessing to, to other people on a spiritual level. Third, one of the things that mature disciple makers do is they celebrate transformation. This answers the question, am I hopeful and optimistic in the here and now for those that I'm trying to build up in the faith? Paul was hopeful and optimistic. In verse 6, he says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you, so he wasn't able to go, so he sent Timothy. Timothy brought a report back and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live. If you, were, if you are standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? As we pray most earnestly, night and day, that is a merism, you remember it comes up early in the Psalms, meditating about the things of God day and night. It doesn't literally mean every hour because you would like die. <laughs> you need to sleep. But it's a merism that just means from beginning to end, all the time, in a consistent way. You're meditating upon the things of the Lord in the Psalms. That's a mayorism, merism, M E R I S M. Or here, he's just praying. He's praying night and day that we may see you face-to-face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So Paul here demonstrates this optimism as he looks at his disciples, he's hearing these good reports, and he's like, this is awesome, I want to encourage you, I want to celebrate this. Good things are happening. Perhaps you grew up in one of those churches where compliments were considered sinful. Sinful. One of those churches where, you know, we we never celebrate the wins. We never rejoice in what God is doing. We never want to, that might make us arrogant. We never kind of want to draw attention to ourselves. Instead, we just kind of tell people when they're doing badly, to kind of keep them humble, when they're doing well, we never say anything. I grew up in a church like that, i got to admit. Very rarely did you get any compliments. Very rarely would someone say, hey, way to go, Aaron. It was more like you you got talked to when something was going bad. And Paul here is not afraid to celebrate the wins in the here and now. He's not afraid to celebrate the good news that was brought back to him by Timothy that his disciples were actually enduring affliction and persecution and all sorts of other trials nor was he afraid to check in on them and to hold them accountable. Now, ultimately, ultimately, of course, we want to give all glory to God for his good work in our lives. But we also need encouragement as individuals, and we also need to privately and publicly celebrate what God is doing in our churches in our marriages and our children etc and we should be good at that paul says here that his joy was founded in seeing others grow he found joy in that and that he prayed earnestly day and night all the time that he might be together with them for that purpose again i just i'm so blessed to see Paul's passion for incarnational ministry and for disciple-making. And frankly, I want that to be more evident in my life. And I'd like it to be more evident in our church that we want to be together, that we are committed to one another, that we are a presence to one another because we understand the blessing of being with one another. And in that context... We're more than willing to get out the balloons and the party streamers and clap and jump for joy when God clearly is doing an amazing work among our people. And then we have a fourth and final point, and it's similar to the third, but it is this. Mature disciple-makers are in the business of pointing people heavenward. So in the previous point, the idea is is that he was hopeful and optimistic in the now, but he also demonstrates that he's hopeful and optimistic in the future. Verse 11 and 12 and 13 bear that out. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, As we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. I would just say that this is Paul's eschatological vision. This is Paul's future hope. This is the image that was burned into his mind about where he wanted to go. He's he's heaven-focused, as I've already mentioned. He is... Moving here from relational concerns in the previous verses to pointing people to their heavenly and eternal hope. And of course, in that acknowledges God's role in their spiritual transformation. You'll notice that to remind them of what is to come, he calls upon God to transform them. Now, I think this is a strategic move by Paul, but it's also theologically accurate, obviously, in that he's referenced several times his role in their lives and building them up into mature disciples. And he's, he, he freely talks about that. So earlier in the sermon, maybe you thought to yourself, hmm, I don't know if I feel comfortable with the idea of me presenting my disciples to Jesus. Why would we call them my disciples? Did that cross any of your minds? But it's actually a biblical concept these people were disciples of Paul. You're like, yeah, I thought they were disciples of Jesus. They were too. Paul was a disciple of Jesus. So in the church, it's accurate to say, oh, you're my disciple, but you're also a disciple of Christ. And we talk about both. Paul has talked much in the text about his relationship with them, his work in their lives to help them to overcome affliction. But lest they start to rely too heavily upon Paul, he now makes it very clear at the end of this text that God ultimately does the transforming. God ultimately does the the, the disciple-making. Look at verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. So it's not, well, is, is God making disciples or are we making disciples? It's both. God is empowering the church, commissioning the church. He says, go into the world and make disciples, and I'm always going to be with you in that process. So we're making disciples, but then ultimately God is making the disciples. This is a proper understanding of disciple-making. So here he points them to God, their heavenly source, their heavenly hope, and he reminds them that only God can ultimately sustain them. Where do we see that? Verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts. Now notice earlier in the text, Paul said, I want to establish you and exhort you. But here he says, well, actually God does the establishing. Well, which is it? It's both. As an instrument of God. Again, you point people to the Lord, you point people to the gospel, and God uses you to help establish people in their faith. But ultimately, it is God who establishes people in their faith. Well, all of this could be summarized in the statement that disciple-makers, in the process of making disciples, pass on their heavenward stance to others and make sure that they know that the ultimate source of their strength, the ultimate source of their establishment, The ultimate source of their increase is in the work of God in their lives. And then he reminds them in verse 13 that eventually Jesus is going to come back with all his saints. So he reminds them of the final destination in the journey. Let me just remind you of that today. You were born in a particular day, in a particular month, in a particular year, to a particular set of parents but that is not your ultimate identity and your ultimate goal is not graduating from elementary school or graduating from high school or college or getting your first job or retiring from your job or whatever. Your ultimate destiny is in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. One day Jesus is going to come back. could be right now. didn't happen, but it could have. One day Jesus is going to come back very soon and you're going to be taken into his presence. Remember that. Never forget that. Remember that in the decisions you're making, the way you prioritize your life, the relationships you conduct. Ultimately, Jesus is coming back. So get about the grand process of making disciples. Live well. Focus on Christ. Hold people accountable. Be a presence in other people's lives. But know that at the end of the the day, when you close your eyes in death, you'll open your eyes in glory. And that is just the beginning of an eternal journey that God has in store for those of us that love him and have been called to him. Invest in people, church. Be a presence. Uh, Incarnational ministry by the church, is essential to the promotion of the gospel and the benefits of the gospel. We need to be thankful, of course, for those that have gone before us and blessed us. I have a whole list of people that have been a blessing to me, have been an incarnational presence in my life. I'm so thankful for them. But our ultimate hope is in the Lord. The psalmist says in Psalm 46.1 that God is our very present help in trouble. So here God is calling us to be a presence in other people's lives through the example of Paul, but he's also reminding us that he is also our ever-present help in our trial and tribulation. And we can certainly be thankful for that and praise him for that today.